Welcome to the first Frontline Gastroenterology podcast. Frontline Gastroenterology is a new journal from the British Society of Gastroenterology and is published by the BMJ Group. The editor is Roland Valori and he's a consultant gastroenterologist. He's here to explain a bit about the journal. So Roland, for a start, how did this new journal come to be? Well, that's a, an interesting question. I think that the source of this was uh, a concern amongst the members of the British Society of Gastroenterology that their current journal was not meeting their needs in terms of everyday management of patients. GUT has provided a most amazing pedigree of publications over the years, uh, significantly advancing our understanding of the conditions we deal with. But sometimes these publications are, are remote from dealing with a person who comes in your front door. The BSG Council agreed that uh, there was an opportunity to do something different, and they asked me to be the editor of this uh, new journal. Is there a simple aim for the journal, then? Yes, the vision is to provide the readership with the information they need to provide the best care for patients. Traditionally, journals have regarded medical treatments to be the key information, but it's very clear to me that the way we work, the skills and competencies that we have, and other factors like um, how services are configured make a big impact on the experience of the patient. Thanks, Roland. Now, in late 2009, there was an international conference of gastroenterology, Gastro 2009. We sent Tom Hoffman along to interview some leading gastroenterologists who are speaking to the public there. We're here at Gastro 2009, an international conference about gastroenterology. This year they have held their first public day, where members of the public could listen to talks by leading gastroenterologists and ask them questions. I'm joined by Eamon Quigley, Professor of Medicine and Human Physiology at University College Cork, and a gastroenterologist at University Hospital Cork. On Sunday, it was Public Health Day, where members of the public and doctors alike heard from a range of speakers, including yourself, and you talked about irritable bowel syndrome. How important is it to engage with the public about IBS? I think the very attendance that we got at this meeting speaks volumes about the importance of these events and of engagement of professional organisations with the public. Despite the fact that it was a cold, wet Sunday afternoon out in the wilds of the Ducklands, we had a tremendous attendance and perhaps more importantly we had an incredibly interactive attendance and uh, I learn a lot from these events and I learn of the importance of patient symptoms and you also often find out new things what really bothers people so I think these events are extremely important especially in areas like inflammatory bowel disease and irritable bowel syndrome air diseases which have a great impact on the individual's quality of life. And that's something we can only hear about from patients. You're on the World Gastroenterology Organization's IBS task force, looking at various aspects of the disease. Uh, what have you been investigating? The approach that we've taken is somewhat different to a lot of other evaluations or assessments of irritable bowel syndrome, and that our primary interest is the global picture of irritable bowel syndrome. We have a lot of data about irritable bowel syndrome from Europe, from North America, from Australia, but relatively little data from the rest of the world. And the finding which came out of this study 
which surprises people, is that no matter where you look in the world, not only will you find irritable bowel syndrome, but you'll find it's quite common. And that in itself, I think, is a very important finding. The other very interesting finding, or set of findings, is that there are differences. While irritable bowel syndrome may be common throughout the world, who gets it, the symptoms they have, the consequences seem to be different in different parts of the world. And I'll give you just one example. In the UK or elsewhere in Europe, if you went into a GP's surgery or went into a hospital clinic, and you, you'd probably find that maybe anywhere from two to four times more females than males with irritable bowel syndrome. In other words, it's very much a female predominant disorder in Europe and North America. In India, there appear to be more males with irritable bowel syndrome. And there are other studies from places like Singapore and from China, which suggest that among other Asian uh, populations, it's about equally common in males and females. Now, that in itself, to me, is an extremely interesting finding. And hopefully, findings like that with follow-up research may provide new clues as to the causation of irritable bowel syndrome. You refer to IBS as a wastebasket diagnosis, as a mishmash of different conditions. Do you think that's changing now? I think it is. I think, I think the getting away from the wastebasket approach is extremely important. What I mean by that is that there was a tendency in the past that if you came to see a doctor with tummy pain, they would do various tests, and once they'd exhausted the tests that were available to them and nothing was found, they'd say, oh, it's irritable bowel syndrome. So it was where everything that you didn't understand was chucked. We're now actually turning that on its head and turning it the other way around and looking at a constellation of symptoms or a collection of symptoms that when we see them collectively, we say, well, that's highly suggestive of irritable bowel syndrome. And we restrict testing uh, to those instances where there are features that could be to do with the patient's age or their gender or where they live that might necessitate ruling out one or two other conditions. The other thing that's happening and been happening slowly but surely over the years is that in certain symptom patterns of irritable bowel syndrome, we actually have found other causes. And in the presentation, I referred to one example, uh, which is microscopic colitis. Now, 20 years ago, the condition of microscopic colitis didn't exist. And basically, microscopic colitis refers to a group of patients who are usually a little bit older, nearly always female, who have diarrhea, watery diarrhea, with very little in the way of any other symptoms. With the widespread availability of colonoscopy, and more importantly of colonoscopic biopsies, we now recognize that these people have quite definite inflammation on biopsies of the colon, even though when you look at the colon through the scope, it looks normal. So that's an example of a condition which 20 years ago would probably have been chucked into the wastebasket of IBS, but now we recognize as a distinct pathological entity, and indeed, we have very specific treatment for it. Do you think IBS sufferers feel neglected because of the medical profession's approach towards the disease? I think yes and no is the answer. I give the very bad answer I give to that. I would say yes, there's still a tendency in the medical profession at large to look at irritable bowel syndrome as somewhat of a nuisance because it's common, the symptoms are quite distressful, and we do not have very satisfactory treatment. So I think that's the one half of the argument. The other half, the no part, is that I would say that in academic gastroenterology, irritable bowel syndrome has become a, an area for very serious research. 
we may not have a lot of answers right now which we can translate into benefit for patients, but we are making progress. And also among those who are interested in this area, I think one of the very important finding has been that it's quite clear that for some patients, IBS can be very disabling. So that recognition in itself, which is now widely publicized, should make everybody involved wake up and say, look, we've got to pay more attention to this. You've talked about how the brain and the gut are both implicated in IBS. How can doctors approach these two separate fronts in a clinical context? I think the first thing is the understanding of the link between the brain and the gut, and that's fundamental to the approach of many patients with irritable bowel syndrome. And that interaction is seen perhaps most vividly in patients who have irritable bowel syndrome and also have, say, anxiety or depression. Now, I want to make it absolutely clear that I do not believe that everybody with irritable bowel syndrome has anxiety or depression. I do not. But what I'm saying is that if a patient has anxiety and depression, it makes their irritable bowel symptoms worse. I say to the doctor who's looking after the patient with IBS that you must recognize the potential for interaction between the brain and the gut in terms of symptom severity and in terms of symptom impact. That's the first thing. The second thing is the clear realization that symptoms originating or stimuli originating from the brain can impact on the gut. And so I would say to researchers who are studying an irritable bowel syndrome, they've got to be very wary of ascribing findings to purely a gut phenomenon when, in fact, they could reflect the interaction with the brain. On the clinical side, we now recognize that some pharmacological compounds, such as antidepressants, for example, we now realize that they also affect the gut. So when you come in to look at pharmacological therapy as a clinician, you must ask yourself the question, could this drug have an effect on the gut or could it have an effect on the brain or both? And, of course, the other the flip side of that is that when you're treating you got treating one, you may end up with side effects in the other. Interestingly, in your talk, you said that doctors should be aware of any complementary therapy their patients are on, um, because some may be effective. Have you seen that in your patients? We often, when we take a history from patients, forget to ask about other types of therapy. You know, we'll ask them you know, what, what prescription drugs are they on, and we may ask them what over-the-counter drugs they're taking. But we may not ask them, are they taking any herbal remedies or other compounds, because some of these may actually be deleterious to them. They can have significant side effects. But in terms of the other side of, of this equation, I think there's now quite a bit of evidence that some therapies which we would, might still regard as complementary or might have regarded as complementary in the fact may have, actually have some efficacy in IBS. And hypnotherapy is a very good example. Like hypnosis would be regarded by some as a complementary therapy. But, but there's no doubt to my mind that um, in the right hands hypnotherapy is effective even in patients with severe forms of irritable bowel syndrome. And that's just one example. So I think we have to, like everything else, we have to critically analyze these studies. Uh, I would be the first to say that a lot of these have not been studied at all, and those that have have often been studied with, in a poor quality fashion. But there is a good evidence, and, and I mentioned in the presentation, for example, this study that's out there for a number of years now, which is published in one of the, the leading medical journals, which showed that a, a particular Chinese herbal preparation was effective in irritable bowel syndrome. Probiotics were considered to be a complementary therapy, but it's now becoming more widely accepted. What advice can doctors give patients about avoiding the probiotic marketing trap and accessing complementary treatments that are genuinely effective? Yes, the whole issue of probiotics is particularly challenging for the consumer or the patient. 
because they're confronted by whole lines of shelves, particularly in the refrigerated section, uh, of products which state or claim that they contain bioactive probiotics. I think to approach this, we must go back to the definition of a probiotic. And I refer specifically to the definition uh, which was developed by the FAO, the branch of the World Health Organization, which said that a probiotic is a product which contains live bacteria, which when consumed in adequate amounts, confers a health benefit. Live to me means that it contains the species that it claims it contains and the specific strain that it claims it contains and only that strain. That it is live, not only at the time that it left the factory, but for the entire duration of the shelf life of the product. Secondly, if it claims to give a health benefit, it should have good quality clinical trials to back it up. Now, that's a lot to ask a consumer who's standing in the shelf holding a, uh, some probiotic product to make a decision within 30 seconds, and that's where the problem lies. The regulation in this area is quite different to that in the pharmaceutical area, because I think we know that if we take a drug which is prescribed that has been through a very rigorous regulatory process uh, to ensure not only efficacy but only sa- also safety... That at the moment does not apply for probiotics. So what, what can you, advice can you give to consumers? Um, you can, I suppose you can give general advice. You can say, well, it's likely that products which are produced by very reputable, well-established uh, companies are likely to have good quality control. But that's a very general claim. In terms of um, supporting actual benefits, there is a considerable medical literature out there that you can find. There are some guidelines For example, like the guideline developed by the World Gastroenterology Organization, which you can find on our website and download for free, uh, which is on www.worldgastroenterology.org, which gives, I think, a fairly broad overview and and an unbiased overview uh, of the field of probiotics, uh, particularly as it relates to gastrointestinal disorders. So, Roland, you've just heard Eamon's interview there. How big a problem do you think IBS is? Well, I think IBS is a big problem numerically, but I don't regard it to be a particularly uh, difficult clinical challenge. Okay. So what would you see as the difference between cases that a jumping doctor like you would see as opposed to maybe a research scientist like, like Eamon? Well, I think there are differences. Um, they will often get referred patients with particularly unusual presentations. And um, my conceptual framework of irritable bowel is is uh, quite straightforward. I, I don't regard it to be a particularly complicated thing. So what's your understanding of what irritable bowel syndrome actually is? Well, that's a very interesting question. My conceptual view of this is that the symptoms arise from disturbance of a combination of bowel function and sensitivity. So the bowel isn't working smoothly, so there's fluid or gas retention uh, leading to bloating, Um, and there's pain because of excess sensitivity of the bowel. When we uh, colonoscope patients uh, with irritable bowel, they often experience their usual symptoms due to gas distension, and uh, we quite often find marked abdominal wall sensitivity, which is a very strong indicator that there will not be a medical explanation. Now, the million-dollar question is what leads to that sensitivity and, uh, and that change in function. 
And my own uh, belief based on seeing thousands of patients and, uh, you know, the reading of the literature is that patients um, may have a predisposition, uh, but quite often it's related to uh, their life not going very well, to being very tense, to not coping, um, to being under unusual stress, uh, but not invariably so. There's a proportion of patients who clearly get what we would call a post-infectious irritable bowel syndrome. And um, clearly there is something about the insult of the infection which then sensitizes the gut in some way. Uh, But generally, never mind the basic etiology, uh, patients generally uh, present pretty similar symptoms and respond to treatment in the same way. So if you have a patient referred to you, how would you manage them? Well, I think the first thing uh, to do is to uh, understand the patient and to listen very carefully to their symptoms. Uh, Quite often, the symptoms don't fit just in the classic description of the irritable bowel. And patients will say, well, how can I have the irritable bowel? I've, I've got all these other things going on. And I'm at pains to point out that I see the Uh, irritable bowel syndrome symptoms as being part of um, a collection of medically unexplained symptoms. And if I think there is a diagnosis of irritable bowel, I make it very clear from the beginning that even though we might do a few tests, that the likelihood is that these will be negative um, because their symptoms are so typical. So what is your approach to testing patients? I'll invariably do some screening tests like um, screening for celiac disease and a C-reactive protein. Um, But going beyond that depends very much on the estimate of probability and uh, how anxious the patient is to be absolutely certain that there isn't another explanation. Okay. Do your patients ever ask for dietary advice? Uh, most of my patients ask for dietary advice, and many of them have usually seen uh, what I'd call a high street dietitian. Uh, but my advice to them is that even though they might get relief of symptoms by excluding things from their diet, that relief is usually temporary. And I think the reason for that is that there's an underlying sensitivity and dysfunction of the gut. So the approach I take is very much to... Uh, target the underlying sensitivity and dysfunction. Okay, how would you do that? Well, in the 1980s, uh, Peter Warwell from Manchester reported randomized controlled trials of hypnotherapy. And on the basis of those in the mid-90s, I set up um, a local GP who'd retired to provide a hypnotherapy service for my patients. And to be frank, I've never looked back. Uh, We audited the first 100 patients um, very carefully, and there were stunning results. We saw uh, significant and prolonged improvements in 90% of patients, 40% of whom were rendered symptom-free. The characteristic of the other group that were better but not rendered symptom-free was that the patients reported that they felt in control of their symptoms, And uh, that was really the most important thing for them. They could tolerate the symptoms, providing they felt in control. So uh, my belief is that um, if you can help the patient achieve better control of their symptoms, um, they are very much happier, very much more satisfied with the outcome. Okay. So you've had success with hypnotherapy. Would you perhaps prescribe any medication for IBS? 
I must emphasize at this point that the typical uh, younger patient, um, the female uh, patient particularly, is uh, exceptionally responsive to hypnotherapy. Um, for people with longer symptoms and with pain predominance, then I will often use a low-dose uh, antidepressant. Um, occasionally, I might use antispasmodics, and I might occasionally recommend probiotic therapy as well. Uh, but if the patient um, is willing and able to afford hypnotherapy, that's the preferred approach. So do patients always need treatment for IBS? Absolutely not. Uh, a lot of patients are just coming along because they don't fully understand the symptoms. Um, they need a label. They might need some reassurance. And I think it's absolutely critical to try to understand what the beliefs of the patient are. So what do they believe is going on? And um, secondly, uh, to try and understand what their expectations are from the consultation and ask them what they want. So does a patient's beliefs and expectations affect how you deal with them then? Uh, absolutely. Um, my approach is very much modified by um, what they're saying. And um, if I think that they're uh, beliefs um, are off the mark, then I might try to um, explain and point out some things that might have escaped their attention, like the link between um, their symptoms and the things they do or improvement in symptoms when they go on holiday, etc. And um, I see the patient with irritable bowel as a customer. And, you know, if you're working in a shoe shop and a customer came in, you'd ask them what they'd want. You know, so I think it's very important um, for us to try to um, help our patients articulate, you know, what their needs and, and wants are. And if you're able to respond to those, then I think you have a much, uh, much more satisfied patient. Great. Thanks, Roland. Okay, now we go back to Tom at Gastro 2009 for the last interview of this podcast. One of the other speakers at Public Health Day was Chris Hawkey, Professor of Gastroenterology at Nottingham and President of the British Society of Gastroenterology. On Sunday, there was a public day and Professor Hawkey gave a talk on inflammatory bowel disease. Professor Hawkey, how important is it to engage with the public about IBD? So uh, this meeting was in two halves. One was a plenary session uh, with patients from the Celiac Society, the Gut Trust, which is Irritable Bowel Syndrome, and NAC, which is IBD. So I was having to talk both to people who had the disease, uh, IBD, that's Crohn's and colitis, and others who would be interested to know about it and compare with their own experience. So I went through the very basics and then I told people about some of the really big advances that are occurring uh, in IBD. For medics on the front line, how do they tackle a patient presenting with IBD-like symptoms? With ulcerative colitis, it's an extremely stereotyped disease and patients present with bloody diarrhoea at periods of relapse. Uh, other times they really are essentially normal. In Crohn's disease, because Crohn's disease can affect uh, all parts of the gut, the symptoms they get are much more variable and it can be very difficult to diagnose, but they include a lot of pain, uh, diarrhea, uh, loss of weight, general ill health, fever. can be quite a challenging disease to diagnose. Okay, so what are the kind of 
big research advances that have been happening recently that you talked about on Sunday? Well, I talk quite a lot about genetics, and that sounds very uh, dry and difficult to understand. But Crohn's disease is leading the whole of uh, medicine in terms of our understanding of genetics and how it causes the disease. And we can actually look at genetic defects and find that there are about four or five easy-to-understand defects, for example, a leaky gut or a deficient uh, innate immune response. That's a bit like the uh, village policeman who mops up trouble from the gut when it first occurs. So patients can easily understand that, and so it's easy to talk to them about it, and it gives them a deeper understanding about Crohn's disease. Uh, another area are improvements in therapy that will come from the genetics but I also told them about an ongoing trial of stem cell transplantation where our goal is actually to cure some people with Crohn's disease not just to treat them. Uh, Do you think that certain inflammatory bowel disease research has been too focused on symptoms and not enough about causes in the past? No, I think IBD, inflammatory bowel disease, uh, has always had a strong pathological focus, actually. So uh, probably the newest drugs, they're not that new, maybe 10 years old, are the TNF-alpha inhibitors. And these were really developed in quite a systematic way from an analysis of what uh, caused inflammation in the disease. And as I say, I think uh, understanding the genetics are already giving us targets for therapy. Um, So could you tell us a little bit about the Young Clinicians Programme? Well, this was something that we uh, thought was extremely important at this meeting and uh, we played, it's one of the main things we set about as an innovation to organise and we had 60 young clinicians from 47 countries that joined 30 young clinicians from the UK did a training course and had a lot of fun, but did a training course which was patient-focused, that's the importance of this, uh, before the meeting. And then they came through and did the postgraduate course and uh, came to the scientific sessions, and we made them do all the work. They did the poster rounds, and uh, they did a very good job. So with things like the the Young Clinicians Programme and the the public engagement program that was there on Sunday. Do you think these types of uh, engagement in conferences are going to become more popular? Well, I think so, because I think uh, there's no point doing science unless you can convey it to the next generation of doctors uh, and to patients who are the people that it's being done for. So I, I very strongly believe that. Okay, thank you very much for joining us. So we hope that gives you an idea of what frontline gastroenterology is all about and what kind of information it will contain. You can read more on the journal's website at fg.bmj.com and we'll be bringing you some more podcasts in the future. Thanks for listening.